Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. My grandmother turned towards a guard. She was in line to be shot into a pit and said, What happens if I step out of line? And he said, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody will. And she stepped out of line. And for that, I am here. And for that, my children are here. That was part of Alex Borstein's 2019 Emmy acceptance speech in which she related the story of how her grandmother literally stepped out of a line and survived the Holocaust. The greatest generation has many women who stepped out of line to serve their countries and their communities in the darkest days of World War II. Many of these women remain relatively unknown, though. And so today we welcome Major General Mary Kay Eater to the podcast. General Eater is the author of The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line, Untold Stories of the Women Who Changed the Course of World War II. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you with us. Can you tell us what drew you to this really fascinating topic? Well, it started in 2017. I was asked to speak at an Army event and talk about leadership and a little bit of history. And I had just finished reading the story about Stephanie Check Raider, who was in the Women's Army Corps in World War II. She was an undercover counterintelligence agent in both the UK, Germany, and in Poland. And I was fascinated with her story and kept thinking to myself, why don't I know this? I should know more military history. Why have I never heard of these stories? I saved a few more. And by 2019, I had a folder full of stories that I had used for various presentations, but I didn't know what else I was going to do with them until I heard Alex Borstein accept that award. And that's what crystallized it for me that I needed to put these together into a book. But what fascinated me as I started to work on this was finding the connections between them, that many of them knew each other or they knew of each other or inspired by each other or same place, different time, that there were these connections. And I was really drawn to that. So your book covers women of different nationalities, different backgrounds, et cetera. Some of them serve in the military during the war. So let's start with them. What roles were available to them and what were they being recruited to do? Well, I like to say that it doesn't matter what the job does. What matters is the life lessons. And what matters is in the individuals themselves, their abilities to accept a risk or to take a chance. So for American women, there was work on the home front. There were the rosy riveters. There was also the opening for the first time to recruit women in large numbers for the armed services. About 350,000 women served in uniform in World War II, whether it was the Army, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard even, and the Navy. The majority, however, were in the Army. As for the other women in the book, the civilians, they were drawn to different roles, whether it was those who fought in the resistance, they were being pursued or were victims of the Nazi regime or those who were just, I think, able to say, I'm not going to take this and I'm going to fight back. Sometimes it was a game in the beginning. We'll let the air out of the tires of the Gestapo on their bicycles. But it, sometimes it grew to be much more than that. So I found stories of several women, including one who was from the Virginia Beach area that I really wanted to talk about. Could you highlight the service of a few of the military women you profiled? 
Well, I mentioned Stephanie Chex, so let me tell you just a little bit about her. She grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, had a degree in chemistry. She was helped through college, but then she couldn't find a job because of first the Depression and then the outbreak of war. So she was in New York City. She decided, I'm going to join the Army, went right down and signed up and ended up at Fort Des Moines, Iowa, where she worked in basic training as a lieutenant. Now, basic training, if you are well aware of that, can be boring after a while. It's repetitive. It's uh, teach them the basics, how to march, how to salute, say yes, sir, no, ma'am. And then you do it all over again. She wanted a bigger challenge. One of her friends says, why don't you try to join the Office of Strategic Services? You have the language skills. Her parents were Polish immigrants. She didn't speak English until she started grade school. So she had the perfect accent, complete vocabulary. She could pass for a native. So she signed up. She joined and was sent first to London to do some work at the end of the war. And then right about in August of 1945, she had her first real assignment undercover. She was sent to Warsaw, Poland, where she worked in the U.S. Embassy under a false name with no military equipment. She said, what would I do with a gun? I don't need a gun. It would have drawn attention to her that was unnecessary. And she worked there for at least six months doing reports on the different political actions happening at the end of the war, the rise of communism, the numbers of displaced persons, fleeing Nazi criminals. So she did all of her work then. And then after the war, she married a pilot she had met in London. So hers was the first story I found. And in 2017, she was being buried at Arlington and had never received an award for what she did in the war. And that was part of the story was the Army's effort to present an award at her funeral. Charity Adams. Charity joined at just about the same time Stephanie Check did. Now, Charity grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. She, too, ends up at Fort Des Moines, Iowa, and she was the first African-American woman commissioned into the Women's Army Corps. She, too, was bored with basic training. Now, I've read her autobiography. She spent a great deal of time preparing herself to take on greater responsibilities. She traveled with the WAC band. She worked in logistics. She volunteered to work with the dining facilities. She did everything she could to get smarter about all aspects of military operations. And so she was finally, by February 1945, offered the opportunity to deploy and to command. She didn't know what. She didn't know where. She was told she couldn't open the orders until the plane was over the water. So that first glimpse of the Chesapeake Bay, she opens the envelope, and there it is. She is going to be the commander of the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion located in Birmingham, England. The mission fixed the mail backlog that had been ongoing for the past two and a half years. Because of the pace of operations, the mail couldn't go forward to the front lines. So there were 17 million pieces of backed up mail in England when she got there. Filling the warehouses, Christmas packages, food that was spoiling, little rat eyes in the dark having snacks. And the troops she had there with her, 855 African-American women, the only all-female unit to deploy in World War II. Now, I've seen some of the lists from newspapers about where these women came from, and at least six of them came from Norfolk, Portsmouth, Richmond, Suffolk, all over the state of Virginia. There were lots of volunteers who wanted to do their bit for their country. And that's what we see over and over. You also highlight the contributions of a number of civilian women. Tell us about a few of them. Well, I mentioned women who fought in the resistance, whether they did so with intention or it was something that just they just grew into. And so I'll tell you about Mary Baracco. She lived in Virginia Beach after the war and just passed away a few years ago. 
She was very well known in the community there because she always talked about the importance of freedom and what freedom meant to her. Now, she grew up in Michigan, but during the Depression, her dad couldn't find a job, so they went to live with her mother's family, and that was in Belgium. So she was in Belgium when the war began. She was 17, singing in a nightclub, hanging out with her friends, and they didn't like the Nazis. Mary was especially offended by the fact that because she, her mother, and brother were Americans, they were required to report to the police station three times a day, every day, and show their passports. So they were being kept track of. Um, They were being watched. And she felt that resentment because of this. So she was happily to go along, happy to go along with her friends and just annoy the Nazis. And of course, after a while, this grew to protecting others, helping them escape, creating false documents, all of the things that people working undercover do. Then someone in their group betrayed them to the Gestapo and she and her fiance then were arrested. She spent nine months in a prison. And after after that time, she had a lot of medical issues, I think, for the rest of her life. She said, you can only be pistol whipped so many times before you have dental issues. But the moment she was out of that prison, she was back in a uniform as a liaison to the Canadian forces. And she finished out the war providing a great service, both, both to her country and to the people there. And for the rest of her life, she was called the torchbearer of freedom, because that's what she talked about at every opportunity. There's a long tradition of studying war and its impact on men and boys. And over the last decades or so, though, it seems that there's now more interest in understanding how wars impact women and girls. And I thought what was really interesting about your book is that you actually do profile one young girl. So can you tell us about her? Sure. Let me let me just say that I think some some famous historians have said we need to have the complete picture of what happened in this time. So Anthony Beaver, who is the renowned British historian, said that means including all aspects of society and everyone, because everyone who was alive at that time was affected in one way or another. And one little girl that I wrote about was greatly affected. Her name was Mary Taylor. She was in China with her parents, her brothers and sister. Her parents were missionaries. So they went to a Western school that was a boarding school. And when the Japanese invaded China, the school was surrounded and they were taken captive. So this little girl from the ages of nine to 12 did not see her parents, didn't know what had happened to her family, and lived behind concertina wire. Every day they watched the Japanese practice bayonetting dummies. They didn't realize the Japanese were practicing killing them. So to this little girl, that was her life. They had contests chasing rats. You know, if you won and you had the most roaches in one of the games, you win. And they went to school and they had teachers who did not let them have any slack because they were in a camp, concentration camp. They all came out of that school, she and her brothers and sister, with the ability to go back to any American school and probably be one to two grades ahead. So they were finally freed in August of 1949 after VJ Day. And a group of American paratroopers jumped into that camp to make sure the Japanese didn't kill them because many of them didn't know the war was over. Of course, all of the teenage girls had crushes on the young American GIs. And they took pieces of the parachutes and embroidered them with their names and gave them back to them. Now, we fast forward 20, 30 years. Mary is in Haddonfield, New Jersey. She's been married, has a daughter, teaches high school, joins the school board, runs for the state Senate, and begins to work at a juvenile detention facility. And as I read her story, I thought, who better to understand children behind bars than someone who spent her childhood, in essence, behind concertina wire? And she did a tremendous job there. 
She also did a tremendous job for her community. She was the one behind all types of community events. They called her a force of nature. What she did was persuade her neighbors at one time that let's have a 4th of July parade. Let's get some patriotism back here. And so all of the neighbors helped sew this gigantic American flag. It takes 12 kids on either side of it to carry it. And for 50 years, that was carried in the 4th of July parade in New Jersey and Haddonfield. Mary passed away in 2019. Of course, with the pandemic, there was no celebration in 2020. But the neighbors put that flag up in front of her house and people would come by just to touch it and put their hand on it. So last year, as things returned, that that flag came back out and the parades continued. So I think she had not only an extraordinary life, average people put in extraordinary situations, but for the rest of her life, she carried that experience and made other people's lives better and left a great legacy. Here at the memorial, we do a lot with the Santo Tomas internment camp in Los Banos. And her story really reminded me of a lot of the the people that we know that came out of those camps, especially the children, and just the incredible legacy that they had after that not really great experience. So I I really enjoyed reading her part of, of your book. Now, going back to the book in a, in a broader sense, did the women that you profiled share certain qualities or characteristics? What do you think set them apart and made them willing to step out of line? Because obviously not everybody stepped out of line. Well, I think the term step out of line is like saying, I will not accept defeat. I will not. I will not let myself die in this situation. I will not let this happen. I will not let something bad happen to others. I will not take this. I will do what I can to make a difference. I think it is that what we would call today resilience, the ability to face difficult situations, pick up, carry on, and get yourself through it, and to help others through it, which translates many times into leadership, which is what we saw over and over in some of these stories. And I think that's true for so many people. Uh, Ruth Gruber, who was a reporter during the war, She wasn't a a war reporter. She wasn't a correspondent. She wrote about big issues. And one of the things she said was she was on a ship leaving Italy with the only group of Jewish refugees permitted to come to the U.S. They had to stay in an internment camp, but they came as special guests of President Roosevelt. And she said during that time, she realized that her entire life would be bound up with stories of resilience, and she needed to be able to tell those stories. She said, I'm not just an observer. I'm not just objective. I live these stories and I am part of them. And I will always be an advocate for those who are oppressed and who need assistance. When I finished the book, I couldn't help but think that there were thousands of other women whose stories we won't ever know, stories that have been lost to us or stories that are left for us to still discover. But then I also started thinking that there's probably equal numbers of women who served the Axis powers during the war. What do we do with their stories? How do we understand those? I'm not sure that I have seen any of those stories. I thought about that question when you mentioned it to me earlier. Um, I was in Germany in December, and um, while my reading German isn't that great, I certainly look for books about World War II that they have published as well, and I didn't see any. I I probably should have if I had looked in other bookstores, but I don't know what they have done with those stories from the Axis nations. I have read about the Russian pilots, the women pilots, the night witches, but I haven't seen any from other nations. I, I know that there are many stories, thousands that we have lost because people in that generation just didn't talk about what they did. 
They didn't seek any type of recognition. They weren't after medals. It was, oh, no, I just did my part. I just did my bit. Now, when I wrote this book, I kept thinking I could do many editions of this with many more people. So I kept finding stories. There's some I wish I could have included. There were some I found that I couldn't find enough information on, whether it was pictures or family members to talk to. So you you have the feeling that perhaps they didn't want to be found. No, I just did what I did. I did the right thing. I don't need any recognition for it. But I think even if you and I don't know their stories and their hometowns and their families in their communities, they were known. They did leave a legacy. Certainly some of the people left a personal legacy. Kate Nolan, who was a nurse during the war, she and her husband, who was also was in the Army Air Corps, they had seven children. Their four sons served in later years, and their granddaughter served in Iraq. So I think many of them left legacies of service as well, if not just military, then in many other ways. After the war ends, it seems that society goes back to normal, in quotation marks. It's almost as if the war opened up a really short window where women were able to prove their competence and their capabilities. And then that window kind of closes after the war ends. And the opportunities for women are still there in some cases, but not quite on that same trajectory as during the war. Given that, how would you describe the ultimate legacy of the women you profiled? And I think you've already hinted at that, but what do you think the legacy is? I think the legacy of the women who served in World War II is that to inspire us all. And I don't think that their service was lost. I don't believe that they had little impact. The 350,000 women who served in uniform in this country in World War II were responsible because of their performance, because of what they did, of the contributions they made, By 1948, President Truman signed the act making women a permanent part of the armed forces. That was on June 12th. And then in July, he desegregated the armed forces based on the performance of all of the people of color during the war and what they did and all of those segregated units. So the impact is lasting. And certainly when people today say we stand on their shoulders, that's exactly what it means because they were the ones who took a chance. We've had the opportunities we do now. So this morning, I was actually doing a little bit of research in the MacArthur archives, and I came across this message from General MacArthur to the WAX, and this was 1949 in Tokyo. And he said, you now have a permanent place in the armed forces of your country. Best wishes are extended to you with my confidence in the continuation of your splendid record and gallant service. It's very MacArthur. Yeah. But I, I think that's a really interesting statement from MacArthur and, and a, a kind of a consistent one that he always seemed to make about women and their service during the war. Well, I think you also see the impact of strong mothers and strong wives on many leaders. And we continue to see that, whether it General, was Eleanor Roosevelt or MacArthur's mother. Yes. Well, thank you very much, General Eder, for joining us today and discussing your book with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed the time and I hope to get there very soon. We will be very happy to welcome you here. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.